Oh, Lord Jesus, what a sweet thought that on that dark night in the garden called Gethsemane, that you would actually think of sinners like us, that you would do all this for love's sake and obedience to your Father, that you would do it to protect us, to guarantee our future with you. Would you enlarge our hearts this morning? Would you not let us fall into the trap of familiarity, forgetting just what an amazing thing you did? Draw us to a new height of worship this morning, Jesus, we pray in your mighty name. Amen. Undoubtedly, one of the most infamous names in American criminal history, it goes by the name of Frank Abagnale. If you have watched the movie Catch Me As You Can, you might know some of his story. For five years, from 1964 to 1969, starting when he was a teenager, he lived a fake life. He wrote fake checks. He used fake, fake credentials, like to be a doctor or an airline pilot. And he lived up the heights of what you might imagine to be the, the living the good life, but it was a fake life altogether. Now, the whole time that this was happening, Frank was a realist. He understood that this was a sort of game and that one day it would end. He says this about the end that was coming. The more I got away with it, the more of a game it became, a game I knew I would ultimately lose, but a game I was going to have fun playing until the end. Very interesting man, Frank Abagnale. But at the end of the day, he is just a criminal that played a game for a time until finally he lost. Now, there are some people that look at the Garden of Gethsemane and the arrest of Jesus, and they see a criminal that had a good run, but who ultimately got what was coming to him. Early Jewish writers in places like the Babylonian Talmud, they say things of Jesus as if he was a, a criminal that deserved to be captured and killed. Certainly the people in Jesus' day, many of them believe that. But is that really who the Jesus that was arrested on that night was? Or maybe you come at it from a different angle. You put on the lenses of modern skeptical scholarship. People that participate in things like the quest for the historical Jesus. Someone like Albert Schweitzer. They see Jesus not as a criminal, but as a misguided revolutionary that bit off more than he could chew. This is what Albert Schweitzer says of Jesus. Jesus lays hold of the wheel of the whole world to set it moving on that last revolution, which is to bring all ordinary history to close. It refuses to turn. So he throws himself on it. Then it does turn, and it crushes him. For men like Albert Schweitzer, Jesus, maybe he is a great example of love. Maybe he was a wonderfully moral man, but ultimately he was misguided. And ultimately the wheel of the world, the power structures crushed him, and he was a sort of martyr. But is that really the Jesus that was in Gethsemane that dark night? Well, this morning we come to John 18, 1 to 11, and we don't see the Jesus that's a criminal 
And we certainly don't see the Jesus that is nothing but a victim. No, we see the Jesus that is an obedient son who is finishing the mission he came to this earth for. And as we examine Jesus in this garden where he is arrested, we will find that Jesus is not out of control. This is actually the very thing Jesus wanted to happen. The arrest of Jesus is actually the one Jesus arresting each of our hearts. We'll see this in four movements through this narrative. Four things we see Jesus doing that will show us that this is all part of his plan in obedience to his Father for our benefit. Those four things are first in one through two. We'll see Jesus waiting. Not hiding, not running, but waiting. Second, we'll see him in verses three through six, revealing, revealing himself. Revealing himself to those who came to arrest him. And then third, in verses 7 through 9, we'll see him protecting. Protecting not out of control, but protecting his own to the very end. And then finally, in 10 through 11, we'll see Jesus obeying. Obeying his Father to the very end. Let's begin in 1 through 2. That first movement of the text as we see Jesus waiting. Now realize we are in a new section of John's gospel. 14 through, chapters 14 through 17 saw Jesus with his disciples in close intimacy. There were these long speeches that Jesus gave to them and even a, a long extended prayer recorded for us. But now the upper room lies dark and empty. Now the Passover meal is just remnants on a table. Now the dark streets of Jerusalem no longer have the conversation of Jesus and his disciples as they walk casually by. Now we come to dark Gethsemane and to the hard road toward Calvary. From chapter 18 forward, we see the pace pick up, bringing us to that moment of Jesus' greatest glory hanging on a cross. Now, the way John introduces this to us in verses 1 through 2 shows us the intentionality of how Jesus kicked off these events. Verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Jesus, having finished that upper room discourse, he and his disciples leave and says they cross this this valley or this wadi, it's essentially like a trench that most of the year would have been dry. But during the flood season, it would have been a raging river that would have been difficult to cross. At this point, it would be easy to cross. Now, they're not going far. They're going from the upper room, which is not far from the Temple Mount, to less than a thousand yards away. You could throw, almost throw a football to where they are headed, the Garden of Gethsemane. They cross this river, they enter this garden, and, and uh, the other gospels give us the name Gethsemane. That, that just means olive press. It was a grove of olive trees, probably enclosed, either because of the thickness of the, of the grove itself or because of a wall. It's a well-known place. You've surely heard the, the name. But catch something that I had not noticed until I started studying this. Catch how frequent of a place it was for Jesus' disciples in verse 2. 
Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. In other words, this was their regular hangout. This, there's multiple reasons why this would be. Uh, the Garden of Gethsemane, as best we can tell, Again, it doesn't lie far from the city, but it is on the outskirts. That means that when you're a popular rabbi like Jesus, who so often needs to escape crowds, if you can go somewhere just a little secluded and being away, that is a wonderful reprieve. But secondly, it's just far enough away, but it's also just close enough that during Passover, with all the Sabbath regulations, this is not considered outside of city limits. Jesus and his disciples don't have to break the law in order to be there and use it as a kind of launching pad for their forays into Jerusalem. Now, all of this, that means that when Jesus takes his disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane, he takes them somewhere he knows they will be found. Think of how hard criminals work to keep their hideouts a secret. When the FBI was being formed, formed, there was a series of bank robberies, and one particular gang was so afraid of being caught that they actually slept in a, like a cargo panel van driving around to different parts of Chicago, sleeping in the cold because they were afraid if they went into a building that the FBI would catch them. How different is that than the way Jesus waits for those who would come to arrest him? He goes precisely where he knows he will be found. Because friends, Jesus is not trying to avoid anything. Jesus is himself kicking off the events that will lead him to the cross. That brings us to the second movement in the text. In three through six, the second thing we see Jesus doing, not just waiting, but revealing himself, revealing himself. Look at verse three. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Now, for just a second, we need to let ourselves be drawn into this scene because it's easy to skip over the details here. It sounds as if Judas is the commander in charge of this group of soldiers, but that's not the case. He's just the informant that goes and gets the Jewish uh, leaders who then in turn go and get the Romans. Now, there are almost nothing that the Romans and the Jews would agree on. But apparently they came to the agreement that Jesus was a problem, that Jesus needed to be dealt with. So you have a pairing of the most unusual parties, the religious Jews and their temple guards armed with clubs and some armor, and then a troop of Roman soldiers. And it's a technical term that John uses for that group of soldiers. It doesn't just mean a, a handful of soldiers. It's a term that means a thousand Roman armored and weaponed soldiers. Now, in practice, it was probably closer to something like 600. And yet, think about this gathering that's coming out to get Jesus. You have 600 plus soldiers armed to the teeth. Romans that live under the maxim that overkill is an impossibility. If there's a possibility of a rebellion, they will put it down and they will put it down with vengeance. They're coming out with their swords, their spears, their clanking armor, and their lanterns, all to arrest one single man. Now realize a group this large was not built for stealth. You would have seen them coming from their torchlight 
you would have heard their armor clanking. You might have heard their feet marching. This was an overwhelming force meant to make people say, this is not a fight I want to pick. And yet Jesus so easily could have avoided them, so easily could have left the garden and fled. But there's nothing easy about what Jesus intends to do. In verse 5, sorry, verse 4, John records for us, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? You know, Jesus is the one that initiates. This is John giving us a little detail to remind us that Jesus is the one in charge in this situation. This group of 600 plus soldiers show up and Jesus is the one who says, what are you here for? Who are you looking for? Verse 5, they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas who betrayed him was standing with him. They have a, a back and forth. He asks, who are you looking for? They say, Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I am he. But did you notice the two details, one at the beginning and one at the end of that verse? First, Jesus knowing all that would happen to him. This is tipping us off that Jesus is not caught off guard by what happens after this. This is Jesus in full knowledge of what's about to happen stepping out to reveal himself. The, the other details, the flip side of this coin, it is the utter cowardice of Judas. The, that little detail, Judas who betrayed him was standing with them. John doesn't give us the detail of Judas's betraying kiss, but he makes sure we know at that fateful moment that Judas was there, that he saw the savior that he betrayed with his eyes. In that moment, he must have known a little bit of the way he had bankrupted his soul. Jesus reveals himself, but what's most shocking is the detail we see in verse 6. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, some commentators think that the soldiers are so caught off guard by Jesus openly saying, yeah, that's me, that they kind of, in astonishment together, fall backward. Now, it's possible. However, if we've been reading John's gospel, I just think that that is uh, having our head in the sand. John has repeatedly, throughout his gospel, pointed out the divine, heavenly origins of Jesus. Jesus is not just some morally impressive man. He is the very word of God taken on flesh to come and dwell among us. Jesus is not just any ordinary teacher. He is a teacher that can reveal the Father in a way no one else can. Jesus is not just some rabbi. He is someone that claims the very name of God for himself, the great I am. One of the features we've seen again and again through John's gospel is how Jesus has used the formulation that God gave in the Old Testament to refer to himself, I am, how Jesus would apply that to himself. No less than seven times we saw Jesus declare this. He said, I am the bread and the life. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the only truth and the life. I am the true vine. 
And in case we missed all the rest of them, he said, before Abraham was, ego a me, I am. Now, if you know your Old Testament, you know that this is not a way that someone could refer to themselves without either being blasphemous or being God himself. So what do we see in this moment? What we see in this moment is the same thing that we see throughout the Old Testament when God reveals himself, when he shows a a sunburst of his glory for a moment before someone, they fall to the ground. They are flattened by the presence of God. In this moment, these soldiers fall back because they see even just a small glimpse of the true glory of Jesus. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, these men would have fallen into the grave and into hell itself if Jesus had put forth the full force of his strength. He only spake a word and down they fell. They had no power whatsoever against him. Now, John is the only of the gospel writers to record this for us, and I think it's because he uniquely wants us to see that Jesus is in total control of this situation. Do you notice that John did not include Jesus' agonized prayer in Gethsemane, where he prays, Father, if there's any way that this cup be taken from me, but not my will, but yours be done? John is focusing our attention on this most important truth, that Jesus is not some victim, Now he is the obedient son, giving his life willingly. Realize in that moment what the soldiers glimpsed. In a moment, they must have had the realization that though they came with 600 plus of themselves versus one Jesus, that it really wasn't a fair fight. In a moment, there was a gravity to what they were doing a truthful gravity, because if he wanted to, Jesus, with a word, could have called down a legion of angels to steamroll that whole army. Jesus could have used the very word of his power that upholds their life to have their hearts stop beating. Or even less miraculously, as he'd done before multiple times in John's gospel, Jesus just could have slipped away and made himself uncatchable by this group. But Jesus has no intention of escaping. He has no intention of overpowering these guards. Jesus intends to be arrested because Jesus intends to finish his father's mission. He's no mere victim. He is an obedient son finishing the mission he came to earth for. We saw Jesus waiting and revealing. But he also has one thing left to do for his disciples with his last seconds of freedom. We see Jesus protecting, protecting, verses 7 through 9. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, Let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that was spoken. Of those who you gave me, I have lost not one. I like to think that in that moment that those guards were stupefied. Maybe they were still gathering themselves, getting back off the ground. 
They certainly must have been rethinking their strategy to come and arrest Jesus by force. And Jesus once again takes the wheel and initiates saying, who is it that you came for again? He gives them another opening. They go through the same back and forth. But this time, did you catch at the end what Jesus does? After he says, I already told you I, I am he, now let these disciples go. Now, the Romans were not exactly in the habit of negotiating with criminals that they were coming to arrest. And yet I have to think that given the glimpse of his glory that they saw in that moment, they, in a moment of pragmatism, maybe thought, you know, why don't we just take the easy way out of this one? If he'll come along quietly, that's good enough for us. Let, let that rabble around him disperse. What are they going to do without their leader in the midst of them? But it's far more than just a moment of pragmatism, isn't it? Because Jesus secures the safety for his disciples precisely how he predicted he would. Did you catch that when he said in verse 9? This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Now, usually when you have a formulation like that, it's a going back to something that was said hundreds of years ago. The word spoken by Isaiah or by Jeremiah, the, the prophecy that has long been passed down, now finally come true in history. But in this case, it's something Jesus said last chapter. Chapter 17, verse 12. And yet when you are the very son of God here on this earth in flesh, every word you speak is a prophecy of sorts. Jesus promised that he would not lose a single one of his disciples. And friends, when Jesus says he will do something, he does it. Jesus here with his last moments of freedom on this world makes sure that his disciples are protected, and that they live to witness to him after the resurrection. Well, from the other gospels, we know that the disciples all abandon him. They flee. They're not thinking about Jesus. They're just thinking about getting away from all the men with the pointy swords. But in that moment, Jesus is protecting his own. He's fulfilling his promise to not let a single one of them be taken from his hand. Now, brothers and sisters, it's, it is true that that prophecy Jesus gave back in the upper room was fulfilled in his disciples fleeing and being physically secure. And yet it's even more true that Jesus protects his own, and that is about far more than physical safety. He protects our hearts and our souls. He protects us from so much we don't even know imperils us. Brothers and sisters, is it, a sweet, is it a sweet thought to you that Jesus would protect you? Do you ever consider all the many dangers, toils, and snares that Jesus has spared you from that you may not even be aware of? Think on the spiritual side. Why is it that you haven't been taken in by some vain, made-up philosophy? Why is it that you haven't been sucked into a cult and brainwashed? Why is it that you came to understand the truth of the Bible? Is it because you're smarter, more spiritually in tune? Or is it because your Savior has protected your mind and your heart so that the truth of God's word might be the thing that reigns within you? Or what about the ways that he has protected you emotionally? Or maybe you've had something really, really hard happen to you this week. 
Maybe something that you've cried tears over. But have you noticed even a small amount of grace in the midst of whatever hurt you've experienced? Uh, something that just lets you know God is there and he's with you through this? Friend, that is Jesus protecting your heart so that you would not despair beyond the point that you can bear. That's him granting you a, a level of transcendent peace that's not from this earth. It's not from you. It's from heaven. That's Jesus protecting his own. Oh, and let's be honest. He does protect us so often physically. I can't tell you how many times we have prayed for someone to recover from an illness or an injury. And we have seen sometimes, frankly, just miraculous things happen. God answers that prayer. When that happens, Jesus is protecting us physically. Now, that doesn't mean that we expect that every time or are guaranteed that. But realize, friends, that Jesus protects those that are his. He made that promise, and he will surely keep it. In the dark garden of Gethsemane, we see the last moments of freedom that Jesus has used to secure the freedom and safety of his disciples. Brothers and sisters, that is a picture of the way Jesus protects you and protects me and every other Christian that lives on this earth. As important as it is for us to be protected, there is still something more that we needed. And it's the final thing that we see Jesus doing in this passage. We don't just need protection. We also need accomplishment. We don't just need someone to set us free. We need someone to obey where we have failed to obey. In verses 10 through 11, we see Jesus obeying his heavenly father to the very end. In verse 10, then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. You might say that Peter has a swing and a miss here. Now, at one level, Peter didn't miss anything. As I was studying this, it's apparent that he likely was using a short sword. So this would have likely been the sort of strike not to try and precision hit someone's ear. This is likely him swinging at one of the temple guards, trying to take their head off, and then wearing a helmet, having the sword skid down the neck and taking the ear off. This is Peter in all of his brash strength deciding that he must defend the Messiah. And at a level, you understand why. He loves Jesus, and he understands the Messiah that Jesus has come to be the same way most Jews in that day did. He expects a victorious Messiah, a military victory sort of Messiah, a Messiah that overthrows the Romans and restores the Jewish nation to where it deserved to be. Messiahs like that don't get arrested. Messiahs like that don't get crucified. Messiahs like that win. So Peter sees the odds, 600 to 1, and figures, well, might as well take a swing. And yet, of course, he misunderstands, doesn't he? And yet, while he misunderstands, Jesus understands perfectly. Look at the way Jesus responds to him in verse 11. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? 
Jesus knows precisely why he is in this garden. He knows precisely where dark Gethsemane and the hard path toward Calvary will bring him. Jesus reveals here what it is that he is sent to do. Uses the image of drinking the cup that the Father gave him. In the Old Testament, the cup is not a cup of blessing. It is often the cup of God's wrath towards his enemies. If you go through the prophets like Jeremiah, there's a a cup that is said to be full of the foaming fury of the wrath of God. That he makes his enemies drink it. And once they drink it, they stagger and they fall and judgment comes upon them. It's not a cup that anyone wants to drink. And yet Jesus understands his very mission to drink the cup of God's wrath and to drink it down to the last drop. The heart of the mission of Jesus is to come and to absorb the very wrath of God towards sinners. And friends, that is the very heart of the gospel, the good news about who Jesus is. He's not just an unfortunate criminal that one day got caught. He's not just some martyr teacher that overestimated his political leverage. No, Jesus came to this earth to die as a substitute. He came to bear the wrath of God toward sinners, sinners deserving of the very wrath of God. And Jesus knows at this, the start of that hard road to Calvary, that dark place called Gethsemane. He knows that he is about to accomplish his mission. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, please understand something that we Christians are not saying toward you or anyone else that's not a Christian. Oftentimes, people think that Christians assume that we are morally better than other people, and that's why God loves us. We know God's rules better. We keep them better. Maybe we're smarter or more spiritually sensitive. And that's why we can look down our noses at other people and be on God's side. But that's not the message of the Bible. And that's certainly not what the Bible tells us of what Christians should understand of themselves. We understand ourselves to be in the same spot as every person in this world. That we have failed to live in accordance with God's laws. That our failure to obey God has actually left us with a blood guilt, a debt that requires a life to be taken. The wages of sin is death. But the difference, friend, is we believe that this man, Jesus, that he came to this earth to die on a cross as a substitute, as a sacrifice, so that those of us who are guilty can be made innocent. So those of us who should be in bondage can be set free. And friend, we would love nothing more than for you to experience that same clearing of your name before God now and forever. We understand that to happen when you believe Jesus, that he actually did what he claimed to do. And when you throw yourself at his feet and you ask him to save you, to do what you never could do, so important for us to understand where Jesus is heading. Gethsemane is the first step on the road to Calvary. 
But let's not skip over the significance of this garden. Because in this garden is where we discover the obedience that each and every one of us so badly need before God. Romans 5 verse 19 links this garden with another garden. Verse, Romans 5 verse 19, it says, For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. You remember the first garden, don't you? Our forefather Adam, he didn't obey God. He broke his law and he brought death upon himself and all of his descendants. We have been living under the curse of God ever since. But 2,000 years ago, in a dark garden called Gethsemane, there was a son of God, another man, one who obeyed his father perfectly to the very end. That man obeyed every single detail of his father's law. He lived with a perfect record upon his life, even until it was spent. And friend, now he can give you that record of righteousness. Theologians call this the active obedience of Jesus. Not just that he was a sinless sacrifice, but that he was the perfectly obedient son who would give us his perfect record of righteousness before God. Brothers and sisters, do you know what that means? Maybe this week you know how badly you have failed. You know you have not lived up to God's holy standards. You can think of specific sins that are present in your life, and you are tempted to go down the road of self-condemnation, to tell yourself, God must no longer love me. How could he possibly care about a hypocrite like me? And yet, friend, if in that garden of Gethsemane, if the righteous requirements of God's law were fulfilled, if that perfect record was given to you as a gift of grace, then brothers and sisters, when God looks at you, he doesn't see a hypocrite. He doesn't see a failure. He sees his perfectly obedient son. And he loves you with the love that he has had for that son for all eternity. Let's also remember what sort of king it is that obeyed to the end, the sort of king we follow. He's not the sort of king that we would serve with sword or spear or ballot box. His kingdom's not of this world. We can't use the tools of this world to bring about the righteousness that only he can bring. Let's not make the mistake of Peter Let's not swing and miss trying to use our own strength for Jesus. Remember that he is the one in perfect control. That was true 2,000 years ago in a garden, and it's true today in Castleton, Indianapolis. Jesus is the one that came to reveal the Father. Jesus is the one that came to bring righteousness for his people, and Jesus is the one that will save sinners. Brothers and sisters, we need only to trust him. Would we be drawn to worship him today? To thank him? To have a heart so overflowing with gratitude that we, we can't but tell others about him? Lest 
I forget Gethsemane, lest I forget thine agony, lest I forget your love for me. Bring me to Calvary. Let's pray.